Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. No, it's a it's a joy to be able to uh, open up God's Word together with you this morning. And you guys know where I'm going. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. You guys know I have a a great affinity towards preaching from the Psalms. When I preach, I, I so love to preach from the Psalms because there's so much encouragement, so much wisdom that comes from these pages. Psalm 93. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. The text says this. Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Yahweh has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The rivers have lifted up, O Yahweh. The rivers have lifted up their voice. The rivers lift up their pounding waves more than the voices of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. Yahweh on high is mighty. Your testimonies are very faithful. Holiness befits your house, O Yahweh, forevermore. So reads the word of the Lord. May he write it on our hearts this morning. You've probably heard it said before, this phrase, we need to get back to the basics. For athletes, this is a pretty common phrase. A coach may tell you that we need to focus on the fundamentals uh, in school, for as you learn a new subject, some kids may be told, hey, we need to focus on the basics with this concept. You can learn something that's very vast, especially in something like mathematics, but you can forget how to do simple addition and subtraction. So your teacher, your instructor will tell you, we need to get back to the basics. For me... I constantly have to remind myself of this because I'm a golfer. And for golfers, you typically play some of your best golf at the beginning of the season. 
The reason for that is that you're not focused on a thousand other things other than hitting that little white ball. Your goal is to make solid contact, not pulling your head, not getting too far underneath the ball, just making good contact. That's a fundamental in golf. And then as the season goes on, you start to try and focus on other things, moving your hips forward, pushing your arms, and your golf game may deteriorate like mine does. We need to get back to the basics. And this psalm is similar to that. The, the language here in this psalm, as you read through it, it's nothing new to us. We're very familiar with this language. We understand what's being taught here. It's, it's likely that most of this sermon is not going to be super fresh material for you, something you've never heard. No, you know this psalm. You know this language. It's, it's all over Scripture. But at the same time, this is something that we constantly need to be reminded of. It's getting back to the basics. Because daily, we face circumstances that are very unknown to us. Whether, whether good or bad, when you come into a day, there is a lot of unknowns. Have you ever thought about that? When you look back after a long day of whatever may have happened, you look back and picture yourself laying in bed in the morning, waking up, and you think, I had no clue what was going to happen today. And we've, we've heard about that with other individuals. When tragic events happen, you, know, you think back, wow, they had no clue this was going to happen today. They had no idea. We all go into the day facing the unknown. And psalms like this are a great reminder for us to get back to the basics as we face the unknown. Because it's, it's not that we forget about these psalms. It's, it's not that we don't know they're here. We do. We know this language you could recite some of this language to heart, but we constantly need to have psalms like this before our eyes. We constantly need this reminder. And that's why the title at the top of your sermon inserts page and at the front of the bulletin is the fact that Yahweh reigns. We need this constant reminder. We need this reminder when we're dealing with the good times. We have to remind ourselves that it's God who is over these good times, and he's the one who deserves all the praise because of times like these. But we also need this reminder as we deal with difficult times. We have to remind ourselves that God is still in control, and we can still praise him in the midst of it. So before you, before you read this psalm and just move on with your morning, as you're going through your devotionals, you can read it just as quickly as you can forget it. We need to stop, pause, 
and consider what this psalm means for us. H.C. Leopold, a theologian, says this about this psalm. He says, This brief psalm is mighty in utterance, colorful in language, and a strong incentive for faith. And I would say that that's hardly something for us to gloss over. And it's interesting to note, we know this language that's here, it appears elsewhere in Scripture. So listen along here. You have Exodus 15, verses 6, as well as verse 10 and 11. Moses says, Your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. You blew with, with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? In 1 Samuel, Hannah echoes these words as well. She says, those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. In the Chronicles, the chronicler writes, writes, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to him the glory of his name. Lift up an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. And you see that same language here in Psalm 93. Nehemiah, the people, the Israelites, in the book of Nehemiah, say this, O oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone are Yahweh. In Job, after being called out by God, Job answers him and says, I know that you, Yahweh, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Moving into the New Testament, in Luke, from Mary's Magnificat, you have the statement, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. This language is known to us. We, we read over these portions of Scripture fairly quickly, but we need to stop and consider them a bit more. Because here, it's, it's not so much the fact that the language parallels, but I want to look, take a look at the context that these statements come in. Who, who said them? Why were they said? And in, in all of these instances, you have the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, where the Israelites were just brought through the Red Sea away from captivity in Egypt, and they give praise to God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, who was disparaged of children to begin with, God gives, God gives her a child. 
and she rejoices in him for that. In the Chronicles, this section of Scripture, in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, it comes after the Israelites had brought the ark back into Jerusalem after it being taken away for many years. In Nehemiah, this section of Scripture in Nehemiah, the, the Israelites had just finished the wall. The law had just been read again. Everything was being reestablished the way God ordained it, and they recognized how sinful they were in light of who God is, in light of how God truly ought to be worshipped. And in Job, you guys are familiar with Job. This, is, this comes after God speaks to Job about exactly who God is in the midst of Job's trial. And then in Luke, Mary's Magnificat, that very famous prayer or praise of Mary to God, comes after Mary is told by an angel that she will bear Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. In all of these circumstances, the writer or the individual in question has just gone through either a very good experience or a very difficult experience. And the result is always the same. How these people respond to this, each one takes a look at the greatness of God. In effect, their statement is, Yahweh reigns. God gives us these poetic passages to show us the mindset of the individual as they face what life throws with them. And the conclusion is, no matter what, God reigns, he is sovereign, and that he has the final victory. They go back to the basics. They remind themselves of the truth of who God is through difficult trials, through great circumstances, through good things, through bad things. The reminder is the same. And so you can see how this psalm is applicable for us in life. It's not just another praise to God. It, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a heart set for us. It shows us the character of God and what that means to us. So as we, as we look at this psalm, I, I've broken it down into into five points, essentially a point per verse. There's five verses, five points. We're going to see the majesty of God, and I'll review these. The majesty of God, the immutability of God, the irregularity of the world, the sovereignty of God, and the sanctity of God. Five points, five verses. And unlike... Pastor Bear, I will probably get through all of my points in one sermon. So we turn to look now at Psalm 93. In the context here, it's considered to be an enthronement psalm or, or a kingship psalm. It's part of a group of psalms, Psalm 93 to 100. 100 being one of my favorite psalms. 
It's focused on the enthronement of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God above all of creation. It's one of those psalms that may have been sung or read during festivals. We don't have a specific author noted here. But the focus through all of these is the fact that Yahweh reigns. And it's clear that these psalms provide us with an upward look at the greatness of God, starting in verse 1 here in Psalm 93 with the majesty of God. This is our, our first point in the first verse, the majesty of God. It says this, Yahweh reigns, he is clothed with majesty, he is clothed and girded himself with strength. This verse, along with much of this psalm and much of the psalms here in the enthronement psalms, provide parallel statements for us. You see where it says in the first line there, he is clothed with majesty. And then in the next line down it says, he is clothed and girded himself with strength. These two form a parallel of sorts. But the parallel is broken by the opening statement in this psalm. It's, it's a timeless statement. It says, Yahweh reigns. It's a current, it's a continuous, it's an ongoing, it's an ever-happening event. It's, it's unlike previous timelines that we see in Scripture where it says, this individual reigned in this location for X amount of years. It gives us a full description of that. Here, the psalmist simply writes, Yahweh reigns. It's simple, yet profound. There's no beginning and no end to his rule. It doesn't say that Yahweh did reign, and it doesn't say that Yahweh will reign. It says Yahweh reigns. It's not a past concept. It's not a future concept. It's an ongoing, continuous concept. It's, it's a perfective aspect in the Hebrew, fun fact, that focuses on what has been established and what continues on through eternity. It always is, it always has been, it always will be. And the truth of the matter is, God reigns, his reign always has been, his reign always will be, his reign always is. Another writer has used this language in a parallel fashion to denote that this person is king. The, the verbiage can be the same. There's a section, uh, I believe it's in First Chronicles, where someone announces that this individual is king. And it's similar in language here. Yahweh is king. And I prefer the more active verb that takes place here. He reigns. It's not just that he is king, it's that he reigns. And his rule is, is marked by the parallel that follows. It says, he is clothed with majesty. Yahweh has clothed and girded himself with strength. At the mention of clothing here again a few weeks ago, you may remember how I mentioned clothing tends to identify an individual. It demonstrates how someone's identified in the same way that an army general is identified by what decorates him. 
in the same way, Yahweh is identified by his glorious majesty. And beyond that, he, he's girded himself with strength. When you think of the term girded, it takes you back to the armor of God sometimes, doesn't it? Where you think of that they girded up their belt, that they girded up their armor. It's, it's a readiment for battle. So when, it's, when the text says that God girds himself with strength, it's that his armor, his weaponry consists of strength. There is no weakness, no frailness involved in God. There's no chinks in his armor. He has no Achilles heel. His, his powerful reign is entirely unmatched. When you think of great rulers and great kingdoms, one of the first ones that comes to mind is someone by the name of Alexander the Great. <laughs> the greatness of his reign is literally in his name. And his reign, more fun facts for you, he had one of the largest empires in the ancient world. It stretched from Greece all the way to northwestern India. And yet, his reign, you think of the greatness of Alexander. In all his empire, his reign only lasted 13 years. Which, another fun fact, that's about the average lifespan of a dog today. So you look at someone like Alexander the Great, and then you turn back to this psalm where it says he is clothed with majesty. He's girded himself with strength. There is no comparison. There's no one that stands even close to Yahweh in his reign, in his power. You can't compare his rule and kingdom to anyone else's. This is the majesty of our God. I love what Isaiah says about this concerning armor and God putting on armor. It says, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. A psalmist also writes, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, wrapping yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain. And some of that language, it sounds a little foreign to us. We can't fully comprehend that imagery, and I think that's the point. God's reign is so far above us, so much greater than anything we can comprehend. And so the psalmist moves on. We see the reign of God, the power of God, but now we move on to look at the immutability of God. And it runs from the latter portion of verse 1 through verse 2. This is the immutability of God. The text says, Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The immutability of of God. Now that's a big $5 word for us this morning. Some of us may not have had our coffee and we're not fully there yet. So immutability. 
to define the concept of immutability, it means that God cannot be changed. Immutability means that God cannot be changed. His, his character, who he is, always remains constant and unwavering. If you were to try and picture this, a good image is that of an anchor when it is dropped out at sea. Because you have a very, very heavy object and you have waves bashing against it and it doesn't even move. It doesn't even shimmy in those waves. It doesn't get caught in the current. It drops. And it's going to stay where it ends up. That's the immutability of God. He cannot be changed. The world may come around him, but it's nothing to God. He cannot be changed. That's why I love one of the more recent songs as, as a musician. I'm always going to reference songs. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. And we hear that, and we often think of ourselves, right? How, how we cling to that anchor, but in reality, we need to focus on the anchor. How it is not moved in that storm. And how much of a comfort that is. It says, the text says, indeed the world is established there at the second half of verse 1. The word indeed there actually strengthens the force of the verb. So, in the New American Standard text, it says something about the world is firmly established. You see that in your text there? That's the strengthening of the verb. So, when the writer says, indeed, indeed the world is established, it's an absolute. It's firmly established. It ain't moving. And the psalmist clarifies it further. He uses a parallel statement. The world is established. It will not be shaken. And we have to make sure that we understand here that the implication is that it is God who has created the world, God who has laid the foundations of the world, and so therefore it's established and it will not be shaken. It's, it's essentially saying that the world never falls outside of God's dominion. And when you think back to everything being established, the world's being established and not being shaken, it takes you back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? Thinking through the creation narrative. And you have in Genesis 1, God naming a bunch of things. He creates and he names a bunch of things. And this naming of objects in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when something was named, it meant that authority had been asserted over it by the one who named it. So in this case, when God names things, he called the light day and the darkness night. He is asserting his authority over it. And it's interesting, I've mentioned this before, but like the sun, the moon, and the stars. The ancient Near Eastern culture worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. But if you go back to Genesis 1, God doesn't name those. It's almost like they're an afterthought. Ancient Near Eastern were uh, cultures worship these, these heavenly bodies, but yet God doesn't even name them. He's so far above them. His dominion is over all. It stretches around the world and throughout the universe. 
and the world will not be shaken because of what verse 2 says. It says, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And when it says your throne is established, it's not referring to a literal throne. We can understand that. It's kind of like when someone says that the White House made a statement uh, that the House didn't talk, okay? It was, it's representative of the authority of the office that is within. And in this case, your throne is established from of old. It's focusing on God. The throne of God represents the authority and reign of God himself. And it's from of old, is what verse 2 says. And it all concludes in verse 2. Instead of pointing to creation, instead of pointing to the, to the throne, it points directly to God and it says, You are from everlasting. All of this is in place. All of this is established and firmly rooted because God is from everlasting. God's rule and his reign, it consists of power. It consists of majesty. It consists of strength. It's, it's all over creation. It does not change, and it never ends. I think it's, it's a good thing for us to carry out our civic duty within our country. I, I see that as a good and true, true practice. But I don't think it's helpful for us as Christians to worry and fret obsessively on political power in our world. I think of the longest reigning monarchy for all, our, all of our British friends across the sea, God Save the Queen. She's celebrating her 70th year on the throne this year. And yet, that's not even a drop in the bucket compared to the fact that God is from everlasting. There have been rulers before her, and there will be rulers after her. But God is from everlasting. There's, there's one individual who put it this way. It's most helpful for us to look to the throne that is never up for re-election. And the verse, verse 2 concludes all of this that stems from the character of God himself in that God is from everlasting. And for us to have a God who is mighty, a God who reigns, who is high in majesty, who is strong, should be one of the greatest comforts for us, right? Because in our world, change is a scary thing. We're not a big fan of change. It's the fear of the unknown. Whether it be moving to a new house, moving across the country, starting a new job. That first day on a new job in particular, it's exciting, right? But it's also kind of nerve-wracking. You're not entirely sure what's about to happen. It's, it's the unknown. But when you compare that with God, 
who is the same as he was when he first created and founded the world thousands of years ago, the God who led Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the exact same God today. But that cannot be said of the world, can it? The world is, is not the same. Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, The rivers have lifted up, O Yahweh. The rivers have lifted up their voice. The rivers lift up their pounding waves. And this is where we reach our third point, the irregularity, or, or the calamity, if you want to put it that way, of the world. The irregularity, or the calamity of the world. We've seen the majesty of God. We've seen his greatness. But here we see the irregularity and the calamity of the world. In the New American Standard text, it says, the floods have lifted up. You see that there in your Bible. And, and that's a fair rendering. A more literal term would be rivers there. The rivers have lifted up. But I don't want you to be deceived by that. It's not like a little calm brook flowing by your house. These rivers are tumultuous. They're dangerous. They're, they're, they're all over the place. They're raging bodies of water. And so floods, I can understand that translation because it's all over the place. It's chaos. And we can see how it's described. It says there that they have lifted up their voice. They lift up their pounding waves. So if you were to put that in a nutshell, they're loud and they're violent. They've lifted up their voice, they're loud, you can hear them crashing, and they're violent. A better term there, instead of, of pounding waves, would be crushing waves. It's destructive in nature. And it's interesting, all over scripture, we have examples of this. Where, where waters actually represent chaos. In the ancient Near Eastern world, that was often the case. Where waters represented chaos because the waters were uncontrollable. In Isaiah it says, The uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas. And the rumbling of nations who rumble on like the rumbling of many waters. Jeremiah Speaking of those who oppose God, he says, their voice roars like the sea. And further down in Jeremiah in chapter 50, he says they are cruel and have no compassion. And again, he says their voice roars like the sea. It's tumultuous. It's chaotic. It's not organized in any way, shape, or form. It's unpredictable. You can't fully understand it. It's dangerous. And now the Hebrews weren't exactly the greatest seafaring people. They did have the Sea of Galilee, which could be dangerous at times, especially at night, being in a fishbowl that it was. But they didn't really understand the open seas that well. 
And so this concept wasn't the most well-known to them. But we can understand this. Back in 2004, some of you may remember this, we had what was called the Boxing Day Tsunami. Out of curiosity, how many remember this event? Remember hearing about it? It probably didn't happen here in Idaho. In fact, I know it didn't. But the Boxing Day Tsunami, it's considered to be the deadliest tsunami in all of history. There were over 200,000 people killed in a matter of hours. There was, in the Indian Ocean, just off the coast of Indonesia, there was a, a magnitude 9.1 earthquake underwater, one of the largest earthquakes that has ever been recorded. It runs right along the fault line there. And as a result of that earthquake, there were waves that were well over 100 feet tall. And as it crashed to the shores of places like Sri Lanka, Thailand, and even as far as South Africa, it was destructive. Houses folded like cards. Trees were uprooted like weeds. That, that shaking force of the earthquake and the resulting tsunami had as much power as 1,500 Hiroshima atomic bombs. This was no small surf wave. And so when you think of tumultuous waters, you can picture those kind of scenes where everything is thrown underwater and destroyed. And that's, it's a fair representation of what's going on in verse 3. In contrast to the God who never changes, the immutability of God, you have a world that is in constant fluctuation. Daily, if, if you watch the news, you can find another natural disaster. It doesn't take long. And it's interesting here, the psalmist, he, he's not necessarily worried about this. When you read what he's saying, he, he's not super concerned. He's just observing what's going on. He, he sees the same turbulence that we see, and notice how he responds to it. His response is in verse 4. He says, More than the voices of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, Yahweh on high is mighty. This, this is our fourth point, the, the sovereignty of God. Our fourth point, the sovereignty of God. It's, it's a comparative from the previous verse, where you see the raging of the waters, and more than that, the psalmist is making a comparison here. He's saying that Yahweh on high is mighty more than that. And the psalmist actually intensifies what he's saying a bit. Take a look at verse 4 again. And when he references the waters and the sea, he actually intensifies it a bit from verse 3. He says, more than the voices of many waters, more than the mighty breakers of the sea. It's nothing small. But the verse actually gives us an ironic ending. Because he compares the mighty breakers of the sea 
But more than all of that is Yahweh on high, who is mighty. In fact, in the Hebrew, the, the wording is reversed to where Yahweh is actually listed last. <clears throat> and it's pointing out that Yahweh gets the last word. In all the raging of the sea, in all the waves that come, in all the struggles and trials, God is on his throne. Yahweh reigns. And I want to be clear about this, though. Because when we see the waves coming, we, we need to remind ourselves that, yes, Yahweh reigns. But friends, that, that doesn't necessarily change the sorrow, the sadness, the, the difficulty of the trial that we face. We can have a firm grasp on God's sovereign control and still get teary-eyed about what's going on around us. It's okay to cry. I've been there. You're, you're weeping while you're reminding yourself that God is in control. You see, this, the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is sovereign, that God reigns, it doesn't negate the suffering. It doesn't. Job know, knows that all too well. But friends, it does help us to take our eyes off of the temporal and put our eyes on the eternal, right? Because, and it's there that the comfort of God comes. When considering this concept of the roaring seas and then God who is far almightier than the seas, I think of Mark chapter 4, and since we're, since we're getting there in our work through of Mark, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 4 for a second. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Mark chapter 4, 35, the, the writer, Mark, he recounts this. And on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they got him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And notice verse 41. They became very afraid and were saying to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? With, with waves crashing all around, the boat filling up with water, getting ready to sink. Where is Jesus? Where is the Lord over all of creation? 
He's sleeping on a cushion. And when he's when he is roused to deal with the situation, he rebukes the wind and the waves. Essentially, to use today's vernacular, he got up and said, knock it off. And instantly, the sea calmed. And I love how it says there in the text, it was perfectly calm. The power to be concerned about was not outside the boat, but rather it was inside the boat, sleeping on a cushion. Our greatest comfort in the uncertainty of life is in the simple truth that Yahweh reigns. Whether you're, you're sitting in the emergency room or you're sitting comfortably at home on the couch, God reigns. And we need to, to take the focus off ourselves and put it on the one who actually holds the situation. Does that help? And so back in Psalm 93, the psalmist concludes by taking a closer look at the God who reigns. Psalm 93, verse 5, it says, Your testimonies are very faithful. Holiness befits your house, O Yahweh, forevermore. This is, this is our final point, the sanctity of God. The sanctity of God. His holiness, his reverence. And it's broken down into two pieces here. You have at the beginning of verse 5, the word of God, and then the latter half focuses on the holiness or the character of God. And so the word of God in verse 5, it says your testimonies, and the term testimonies here, it's, it's a broader way to address all that God has said, all that God has revealed, all that God has written, his testimonies, his entire word that you hold in your lap, it says this, your testimonies are very faithful. The New American Standard describes your testimonies as fully confirmed. It's interesting, this word for, for faithful or confirmed, it's, it's where we get the word amen. It's a, it's a truly, let it be so, absolutely affirmative, I agree, it is true, it cannot be unestablished, and that's God's word. The word, it's reliable, it's true. It has been confirmed, it's been established, it's faithful. The word that you hold in your lap. You've, you've heard the expression that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Well, here the psalmist says that God does not fall into that category. He is absolute power, but he is incorruptible. And not only that, what he says is reliable. It is true. It can be taken at face value. He can be trusted. And he must be trusted. And then lastly, the psalmist looks at God's character, specifically one characteristic. It says, holiness befits your house, O Yahweh, forevermore. It's kind of like saying, your decorative style in your house is holiness. 
Now, for some of us, we, we go for a rustic outdoors look. Some of us go for a modern chic look. I still have no idea what that means. But God's design, the outfit of his house, is holiness. So you have, you have this psalmist here in, in trying to tie this together, because verse 5 seems to stand alone apart from the rest of the psalm. You have the psalmist here who is desperately clinging to the truth that God reigns amidst the storm, and he recognizes that for him, in order for him to cling to that truth, in order for him to understand that truth fully, he must also recognize two things, that God's word stands true, that God's word is faithful, and that God must be recognized as holy. How, how the psalmist views God is critical for his conclusion that he starts with in verse 1. In order for him to say that Yahweh reigns, he has to understand that God's word is true and that God is faithful and that God is holy. Excuse me. The, the stable reign of God has to be viewed through these two lenses. We have to understand that God's word never fails. Because if his word failed, then his reign would be unstable. It would be just like the world in verse 3. And we have to understand that God himself is holy and set apart because without that, his reign would not be absolute. His reign would not be true. It wouldn't stand firm. And the fact that it's forevermore, there you see that at the end of verse 5, echoes what we saw in verse 1, where we said that it's, it's God who reigns. It's not that he did reign or that he will reign. He reigns. It's a permanent fixture, and it continues forevermore. And for us as worshipers who cling to this truth that God reigns, who are encouraged by this, it's important that we reflect this truth in our own lives, isn't it? Do you believe that God's word is absolutely true? Do you recognize God's holiness as separate from our sinfulness and our need to be with God who is holy? Do you recognize that? Do you understand that? Because in order for us to grasp the fact, the wonderful truth, the encouraging truth that God reigns, we better believe that his word is true and that he is holy. And, dear friends, there's, there's only so much comfort here in this psalm as there is humility in our position before God. Think about that for a second. There's only so much comfort in this psalm as there is humility in our position before God. It's, it's recognizing that we are sinful before a holy God. And it's recognizing that we need a mediator who can sanctify us, who can cleanse us, who can make us holy, and that's only found in Christ. And, and the only way that you can have that assurance is through repentance of sin and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is only then that you can truly say with confidence and with full assurance 
Yahweh reigns. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your greatness above all of creation. Lord, we thank you that you indeed reign. We thank you for the comfort that that is for us. That in the midst midst of trying times, in the midst of raging waters, Lord, we know that you are our great anchor. That you are firm. That you are good and holy. That your word is true. Lord, may this be a great encouragement to us today. May we understand that there is no one like you. There never will be anyone like you. And we rejoice in the relationship that we have with you. Knowing that you are good and holy and true. And Lord, above all, that you sent your son to die for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we may have life. Lord, this is a great joy unto us. May we have it forever before our faces. May we hold it close and dear that God reigns. We thank you. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.